welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the world of arts, culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm your host, Hesham Montasser. If you're joining us for the first time, you can follow the show in your favorite podcast player, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Just hit the subscribe button to get notified of every new episode. Or visit thelighthouse.ee slash podcast to see our previous shows in all their glory. I'm joined today by Samir Hamada, who became a staple of Dubai's nightlife scene with venues such as Republic and Stereo Arcade, before he ventured into his current gig as the founder-operator of Akibadori, a D3-based Japanese street food and pizza brand. We're digging into his journey to find his purpose, his move from nightlife to F&B, and the lessons he's learned all along. But first, let's get our names right. I was told before I walked in here not to call you Samir. Is there a story that you feel you want to share? Not really a story, more of a discrepancy among uh, people. Does it bother you to be called Samir? No, I have a really good friend called Samir who now goes, call, who now goes by Sam <laughs> because he didn't like people calling him Samir. Okay. <laughs> um, you think I'm kidding? I'm not kidding. I'm not, I'm not even kidding. He no, because I was sharing the story that I actually have to admit, I hated when anyone called me Sham. Okay. And this has you don't like Hishams in general? Or no, 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 no. no. I thing? like Hishams plenty. I just don't want to be called Hisham. I'm, I'm Hashem. And, and, you know, so why am I, I mean, people can take the time to figure out the difference. It's a small difference, but an important difference. Do you think people focus these days? Do you, do you no, think they're kind I'm, of. But I'm somewhat focused on myself, and therefore. I, of course. I, am... I mean, someone has to. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you. Yeah. So anyway, you can, don't call me Hisham. I, I never did, but now I might start doing it. I'm going to start with the story of actually when I first met you, not in person. I was, and I think I shared this with you, I was on Emirates Airline uh, flight coming back to Dubai. And you were being interviewed on their, I guess, pre-podcast days on their um, flight. On ice. On, the, on uh, ice, exactly. Yeah. On their interview thing. And I was like, we were starting the lighthouse. We had just started the idea of the lighthouse, but we hadn't opened officially yet. And I landed in Dubai and then messaged Hany. I said, you know, I, I listened to this guy on, on ice. And he really has it together. I mean, he tells the story well. The message is clean. His voice is very clear. I'm like, you know, when we set this up, we need to sound like that. And, <laughs> wow. wow. And okay. I, think I, I think I shared this with you. I, I'm being honest. I'm not just sort of, uh, you know, uh, complimenting you for compliment's sake. So let's start maybe on that note, and then we'll go back and forth and jump around. So how did this all come together? Were you always in... Did you always think you wanted to be in, let's call it broadly hospitality and, and this business, or was this an evolution? I never wanted to be in business in general. Okay. Uh, in fact, I would probably say I'm anti-business. And then in the sense, for me personally, I, I'm not a huge fan of, uh, of working. Does that make any sense? It does. <clears throat> yeah. It does knowing you, I mean, yeah. Look, the, the, I had a very, uh, very kind of simple realization in college. Um, when I used to host events and, and, and manage bands and do stuff like that. And, and you I, were in college in Beirut? In Lebanon, the American yeah. University in, in Beirut. And uh, I realized there was a lot of work for you to make money. Like you had to work a lot. If you wanted, I mean, if you wanted to sell your time, mm. let's put it that way. That was mm -hmm. my realization. So I'm like, well, how much is my time going to be worth over the next 20 years? And how much could I smack your microphone? How much is this microphone worth? So, I, you know, if I wanted to sell my time, I wanted to know how much it could be worth. Or if there was a way for me to sell other people's time, how much would that be worth? And there's obviously more people than there is me. So I realized I would like to be in the business of other people. 
So it wasn't necessarily um, events at the time or hospitality. I never thought I'd get into hospitality. What did you think you would do when you were in college? When you went to college, what I did studied, you I studied, I mean, I, I flipped up through a lot of majors. I did okay. graphic design for like half a semester, literally half. Um, I did business for a semester and I dropped out. Then I went into English literature because I just wanted something easy so I could do other things in college other than study. Other things meaning what? Whatever I wanted to do. I was into sports. I was on like four varsities. I did theater. I did music. Okay. Uh, I partied a lot, you know. So no, I mean the partying. I was just because it's like kind of more of a joke than anything well, everybody else. Everybody partied in college. But I wanted to do other things. I used to write for a magazine. Um, I got into politics for a little bit. Wow. I ran for elections and like kind of almost broke a freshman record for AUB history, whatever um, number of votes and stuff. Just anti-politics, though. Again, into politics, but to rebelling, go, rebelling. Well, go up against the the militias at Lebanon, yeah. to be honest. Yeah. And I created a block of independence and we like were the majority in the council for a year. So I made their life miserable. That was always fun. And I'm still pr very proud of it. So I tried a lot of different things because I, I didn't really think there's something, there's something specific that I'm going to be doing. And I remember having these conversations with people. They're like, you're studying literature. What are you going to do? Like be a teacher? I'm like, well, that's why there are people like you and there are people like me. No, it doesn't matter. I don't think it matters what you study unless you're studying to be a technical base, person, yeah. like a doctor or an engineer. Which is what liberal arts is all about, essentially. Exactly. So, you know, and I obviously had very supportive parents and they weren't they were like, okay, listen, you know, as long as you're actually studying something, just do it. And uh, I don't remember buying any books because I was the only guy um, in my literature class. So girls would just give me the notes. <laughs> honestly i mean i you know it was just what it is um so it was fun college was fun but it wasn't like again a necessary trigger that got me into and you graduated and 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 moved straight to dubai or you stayed in beirut i applied to graduate school in new york okay and i wanted to go to nyu and um i wanted to go and then my brother just graduated from flight school in florida embry riddle and, and got a job with Air Arabia, and he moved to Dubai, to Sharjah, actually. My dad said, forget New York, because you're never going to come back if you go out there. There's a huge opportunity in Dubai. This was like 2002. And your parents were in Saudi? In Saudi. Yeah, in Riyadh. I, grew, I grew up in Riyadh. Which is where you grew up. Yeah, so my dad was like, why don't you move out there and do something? Um, instead of going to New York. Sharjah, New York, Sharjah, New York. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, Dubai, I mean, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I, yes, I moved here. I, we went to Sharjah first for like a couple of weeks, and Bassem moved to, when they, we moved to Dubai, and uh, I worked on a movie we called Syriana. I was like a production I assistant. I remember Syriana, yeah. Yeah, I was like a PA. I, this was a very interesting story. I gave up a 15,000 dirham a month job to go do uh, basically free internship with for Warner Brothers to do a movie. Because I'm like, maybe I want to be a director. I don't know what I wanted to do. <laughs> I was 23. And um, I gave up that job. And one of my dad's friends was like, you know, nobody pays what these guys are paying a kid. So he's kind of stupid that he's not taking. He's fresh out of college, $4,000 a month. Like, and that's like, ah, he'll figure it out. And then I did the Syriana thing. And then I uh, ended up at BBDO for 6000 at homes a month. So I did really well with that. So from 15 yeah, to probably. 6. Yeah, not many people can lose half the salary <laughs> before they even start. Um, so yeah, again, that was back to my selling my time. So I realized if I stayed in advertising, my time is worth only so much. And I look what everybody else was doing. And obviously in my ridiculous brain, I thought, obviously I'm going to be like the CEO of a company eventually. So I, how much do these guys make? So I used to ask a lot of questions, very embarrassing questions to people. Um, and it wasn't met very well. They're like, get out of here, child. Like, go buy your <laughs> But it's so suit. interesting that you thought of it essentially as an opportunity cost. I mean, that's, a, that's the way a lot of people think. 
kind of as they get older, but not usually at 23. Oh, I thought about this when I was 18, when yeah, I was, when I was throwing crazy. events. Yeah, okay. I mean, so I, that's why I didn't want to get into law school. Yeah. Medicine, definitely not for me. I didn't have the patience to, to read and, and remember stuff and figure things out on people who are alive. Um, so with, with advertising, I left after nine months. Um, again, not because I wanted to leave and do anything else. It's because I figured out how much money people were spending on events. I'm like, okay, events are cool. I'm creative. I can create concepts and have people run them and have three events on the same night where I don't have to be in each one. And that's literally how I started my first business. I was 24 and I partnered up with a bunch of guys who owned the jazz festival at the time, uh, chill out productions. And I took half the company. I would have been fine with 10%. I'm like, I want 50%. They're like, done. I'm like, sweet, <laughs> this is great. I should negotiate more. And it was great for a couple of years. I mean, we were making a killing. Um, and again, I didn't have to be the guy doing all the work. I had, there were other people involved. There were, we subcontracted a lot so I could do, be in two places at once and I could be making money where, while I'm somewhere else, which was amazing. Did you start at that? Because I, I have a perception of where I think you're kind of, I mean, you're obviously strong in a, in a number of things, but where you add the most value. But did you have at that point, relatively early stage in your career, in your life, a sense of where you add the most value? So if you would do something like that and work on the Jazz Festival, would you have said, you know what, I'm very creative. I'm going to focus on this and you guys focus on this, this and that. Or you were just sort of come as it may. So with the jazz, I, so I owned the sister company, which was the, mostly the corporate event stuff. So I didn't really have much say in the Jazz Festival, but mm -hmm. I did have a lot of say in the film festival because we, we produced it for a couple of years. So we used to create like IPs for them. So I realized then, yes, that I like creating concepts. Novel intellectual concepts. property, yeah. something that is of value to people that could be worth something in the future, um, which is actually the Jazz Festival was the best example of the most successful event IP in the Middle East, I would say, because after 14 years, they sold it for a lot of millions of dollars. Correct. So that's a successful IP. And with events, how many event IPs are there really? Like when you consider all the events that have happened in, this, in the city, in the country, how many event IPs from Dubai are worth anything? Very few. It's very difficult. Ah. Because again, humongous market, but limited, limited resources um, for for events in the sense that there's only so many events you can throw in yeah, Dubai. Yeah, brand building is hard. Yeah, and you're you're doing it six months a year, limited venues, artists cost a fortune, sponsorship was on the way down. So after a couple of years, almost four or five years of doing the events thing, um, I used to throw parties to go to clubs a lot, but then I got bored of it. So I used to throw parties with my buddy Sam, Samir, who calls himself Sam, because people called him Samer, the guy I told you about in the beginning. Um, we used to throw parties at his house. His house and the guy called Carl Wazin, who now runs a humongously successful startup in South Africa called Yoko, uh, called uh, Yoko, I think, well, I just maybe, or Zoko. I, actually, I should remember what it's called. I'm such an idiot. Um, maybe we should not put this one in. <laughs> we'll definitely keep it in. Make yeah, sure definitely. In. Uh, I think it's Zoko. I mean, that's so embarrassing. Moving on. Moving on. So, um, so long story short, when we used to throw these parties, uh, it was music for me. It was more than the event. Or there was no money involved. It was just us having a good time. And I realized I'm still stuck in the 80s. And a lot of people were still stuck in the 80s. I'm talking about from a music perspective. Yeah, please speak to yourself for yourself. I was. I had totally 60s evolved. for you. You were stuck in. <laughs> I had totally evolved at that point and moved to the 90s. I'm sorry. Really? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Firmly. Because I was a child in the 80s, so it made sense for me to be obsessed over a decade. Are you suggesting I, I wasn't a child in the 80s? Childish. You were childish am, in the 80s. <laughs> I am born in 1974. I can say this on the records. Thank you very much. So I was definitely a childish. 
Yeah, we're Ish. still childish. <laughs> I don't see that. Anyway, I had made the transition successfully to the 90s. Correct. With my musical taste where you were still stuck in the 80s. I loved then, the 90s, but when Kurt Cobain died, it was at the end of it for you me. Were, you were shattered. That, it was, it actually was very, it was, yeah. It was one of the few things I remember from that period of my life. So, yeah, so I realized music is something I really loved, obviously. I mean, I've always loved music, but like to the point where, you know, I, would, like, I wouldn't mind DJing for a living. That's literally what I thought. I'm like, that sounds like fun. Yeah, so it kind of went from that to randomly meeting a guy because I was looking for a space to open a bar and randomly meeting a guy called Amir who was also kind of like me, just floating around and was very successful in Sweden throwing parties. And we both opened a bar called One on One together in, uh, at the Monarch at the time. So what year are we now? 2009, I want to say. Okay, so relatively early days of Dubai. But this was sort of, so was this right after the financial crisis when things in Dubai were going downhill or just still at the peak? With nightclubs, there was no... You didn't feel that. There was no descent into the abyss right. until 2017. Okay, interesting. So from 2005 to 2017, I would say if you owned a nightclub in Dubai and it was successful, you made a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah, and you started, so from there you started Republic. So one-on-one, -on -one, we closed after three months. It was incredibly successful, but uh, the hotel got taken away from the operator and we didn't read contracts because we were a bunch of idiots and we were kids and we just wanted to play some music. Um, we didn't read the contract properly and we were stuck with the management company. So when they got kicked out, we got kicked out with them. Like they still have our deposit. It's 2021. It's been like 11 years. So 2010, um, got out of that almost a year later, opened Republic with Amir and with Reda Rad from TBW Adon. Yeah, so that was our partner. So at this point, you're sort of starting to get into the night, nightlife business. Did you stop and think about, again, I just want to understand how much of this was structural versus you sort of went with the flow. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows that these businesses are very hard to maintain globally. I'm not talking just yeah. about Dubai. Correct. And then usually people move on to the next best thing. Correct. Was that something that crossed your mind or were you sort of like... I'll just sort of go with the flow if I do it at least a couple of years and I can move on to the next thing. How are you thinking about this? So this is kind of my, uh, my thought process again since I was very young when I used to wing things is I'm never going to be ready to know what the hell I'm doing until I do it, right? So I just have to start even if I'm not ready. So it was something I had to figure out as I went along and um, I did figure it out and I think I cracked the formula with nightlife. And Rep again, Republic was incredibly, incredibly successful. And then Stereo Arcade, I'm fast forwarding. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we're almost like a landmark. Even yeah, though it's Stereo only Arcade was uh, was uh, probably even now is still one of the most known clubs yeah. in the history of Dubai, which is crazy for something that only lasted less than four years. But Stereo Arcade was everything I wanted to do with Republic that I couldn't do, and it was the first time I ever raised money in my life for anything. Did you think about how to go about this or did you just go to... The reason I'm, I'm mentioning this is there's a lot of listeners probably thinking of starting a business and people, that's a stumbling block. People don't know how to go about raising money. Did you just go out there, talk to your friends because it's a, ultimately it's a kind of restaurant slash nightclub. People can relate to it. So it's fairly easy to explain the story and then said, I need $10. I'm going to take $1 from this guy, $1 from this guy, $1 from this girl. Or was it in a kind of some formal... Way. Stereo Arcade is one of the most complicated fundraisers I've ever done now that I've done a few more ever. And I don't think I would ever do it that way again. Because there's so many shareholders. One, there were so many shareholders. And two, um, there were a lot of learnings, if you will, in terms of raising money. Like 
where you want to raise from, where you don't want to raise from, uh, a minimum buy-in, uh, kind of somebody's appetite in this business, their understanding of the business. So you become a lot more educated as you go along. So can I just sort of be a bit more blunt here? Because yeah. I just think it's important. Essentially, what I think you're describing is you took money from a lot of different people. You didn't really have well, a minimum. Well, I had a business partner. I had a business partner who had done this before. Okay. And I've known the guy since we were kids, so he knew what he's doing 100%. Like for him, it's like, dude, doesn't matter who you bring on board, you're going to have the same... Headaches. Exactly. So he's like, let's just get, get what we can and let's build this to the best of our abilities. And to some extent, that is right. I mean, to some extent, it is right that you get what you can, but also you need to know what you're getting into. Yes. And you need to know who you're taking the money from because ultimately a half a percent shareholder shouldn't have the same say as a 45% yeah. shareholder. And, and they didn't. So in, in our case, but again, I gave up a lot of sweat equity as the creator of the concept. I gave away a lot of sweat, which I never would do again. How would you do it today if you had the opportunity the to The way redo I'm doing it now with Akiba Okay, So how would that work? Just so we have contrast. There we don't need be, exact numbers. We just want to get the structure. The structure, well, it's very simple for me. Your time is worth money. Correct. That's it. Anybody that tells you otherwise, don't get into business with them. It's very simple. But you can't come tell a, share, a potential investor that, oh, I spent six years developing this, so my shares are worth $6 million. That's also not how the world works. You're going to spend a couple of months working on a business plan, on a financial model, hopefully much faster than that. What is your time really worth in those six months? Factor that in. What is the brand really worth before you've made a dollar? Not very much. What is the intellectual property worth before you've made a, a dollar? Not very much. As long as you're protected, give away a bit more. Keep 10% sweat if you think... It's a million-dollar business, and you've spent $100,000 worth of time. So just explain to, to listeners here. So what you're suggesting is you roll all this into a equity percentage. So an equity, essentially, right? A number, an actual a physical number. financial number. Yeah, so let's number. just say just for illustration Say $100,000 is what your time and energy and everything you've done is worth. Correct. So $100,000 is, is what I value my time, the IP, the brand creation, everything. be fair everything. about it. Don't yeah. be ridiculous. And, and I, then I say that is, let's say, 10% of the total value of the company, mm -hmm. correct? Correct. And then the 90% are now up for sale, essentially, for, and I go out for, for the full amount, right? Yes, for the full amount. Because you're still raising a million dollars. Correct. So you're basically taking a 10% premium. With, um, with that in mind, I do something as well, which I actually advise people to do because it shows that you believe in the brand that you're putting money in. You put your own money. If you have money to put, man, even if it's 1%. Right. So I do a seed bonus now. So if I'm putting in 10%, I'm taking another 10% over and above the sweat. So I'm putting and in you're money. you're paying for it. I'm paying okay. for it. So I'm putting in money to show that I believe in what I'm doing. I'm taking what, I'm, what I think I'm worth or my, my, time, my time was worth, and I'm selling the rest. And at the end of the day, no one is gonna, going to buy into your business because of your business plan being perfect. No, they believe in you. And anyone that tells you, and give me team. projections and give me ROIs, Correct. It's not the 80s anymore. This isn't a movie. This isn't Wall Street Part 3. There's no such thing as projection. Let me just remind you, the 80s is you. I'm more 90s, but yes, I get the point. So for 90s, for you, that would be whatever remake Gordon of Wall Gekko. Street. Well, yeah. That, yeah, that is Wall Street. Yeah. So you said the but 80s. But that's 90s. No, Wall Street was in the 80s. Was well, it? we're going to have to check this. We should ask some, uh, <laughs> some people. All right, we're going to take a quick break, go fact check when Wall Street was released, and we'll be right back after this short break. Hi everyone, yes, I'm looking at you, Jim Buff, an early riser. The Lighthouse is now open at 8 a.m. every morning to accommodate those who are looking for a hot breakfast before they start their day. 
So stop by our D3 venue for an early morning pickup or order via one of our delivery channels like Deliveroo or our direct channel on Instagram. Welcome back. You're listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with Sam and Hamada. Oh, and Wall Street was released in 1987. So we were both right. As you've now moved into the F&B business as well, and Akibadori, case in point, you have a D3 uh, location, which has been successful and here for a few years, and now you're expanding. Are you raising money location by location, um, bringing new shareholders? This whole structure explained to us. You do this every time again, or do you do it at kind of some holding level and saying, you know, Hashem, you're coming in, you're investing in Akibadori holding, let's call it that, and then you're coming with me to whatever the new locations are. So that's exactly what I'm doing. So, okay. and the reason the, the for, latter, the latter, exactly. Okay. So the reason for that is doing it location by location is That's the messiest sense. way to Correct. exit a business. Not scalable. No, but, well, for starters, if you're buying 10 restaurants and there's five partners in each restaurant and they're different, you're buying from 50 different people. Correct. Why would you do that? So any educated investor, any private equity fund, any guy who just you know inherited money and wants to buy a cash business, somebody who wants to diversify, they're going to look at the easiest access to your business. So what we've done, even from the start, I opened a holding company. So all the money gets raised into the holding company. People get diluted if they don't participate. That was always the case from day one. Because again, I learned from, from the past. So, But if you've learned from the past, can I just interrupt? Mm-hmm. So Stereo Arcade, like all of these businesses that are consumer-facing hospitality businesses, are incredibly difficult to execute and maintain. Correct. So you've migrated from there and thought, let me move to FNB because it's easier? Or because, I mean, it has very similar competitive threats and is a business in Dubai that's incredibly competitive. Mm-hmm. So what, what was that transition? And don't tell me, I'm not going to accept the answer this time, that... You just sort of said, let's do it and we'll see, figure it out later. No, no, of course not. No, this was very, it was very well thought out. Uh, I realized with both Republic and Stereo Arcade that you could have an incredibly successful nightlife venture that can no, go nowhere. And I had a lot of these people coming up to me at 2.30 in the morning saying, oh, I want to bring this brand to, uh, to Cairo and to Moscow and some random guy to Guam. Which he was actually that serious. That was probably three in the morning, but yeah, then, well, yeah, it was probably three thirty. <laughs> so nightclubs are very difficult to franchise because what are you really selling with a nightclub? You selling the name, the design. Dubai made that mistake. People were importing nightclub brands, paying millions of dollars sure. from New York, and no one cared. Nobody knew them. Yes, correct. Nobody cares. If your concept isn't spectacularly different, you are selling hot air. Stereo Arcade is a very unique concept globally. There's very been nothing so. like it, with Agreed. all due respect to other clubs. There's been nothing like and it. And I think it could have been copied into other... But it's not a franchise. I do go do it myself. I change the name. It's not, you can't really replicate. You yes. can't replicate the Dubai crowd in New York City. It's a completely different world. You can't replicate the Beirut crowd in, in Cairo. They're, I mean, actually very similar crowds, but like it's still, it's still very different. So with a restaurant you can you felt you, you can, can. Yeah. of course i can so menu is the same or tweaks tweak exactly so you can adapt a restaurant adapt it mine like minor you know make minor minor adaptations and open several branches there are a lot more verticals in a restaurant than there are in nightclubs what's the most you can do with a nightclub i uh, have we had a spotify account i had a i had a music channel in emirates that's it you can't you can't there's no money in those so with a restaurant there's a lot you can do in the future. You can make a recipe book. You can sell 
delivery. You can sell merchandise. You can license it. You can franchise it. There's a lot more. So what's so interesting is I think, and I think that's one of the reasons we kind of got together and clicked on that point. You've thought of Akibadori all along as almost like a lifestyle brand as, as, as opposed to just a pure F&B brand. I mean, when I remember first walking in there, or when you actually told me about the idea when you were coming yeah. to D3, yeah. and we'll talk in a second about why you chose D3, but it feeling like, um, you know, it was more than just sort of Japanese pizza, let's just say. And the way you're thinking about it now, you're thinking about ancillary businesses that work with the core F&B, or am I wrong? I wouldn't go as far as say lifestyle, okay. but I will say food lifestyle. Meaning okay. what? Meaning I want to be, be in people's homes. And not just from delivery or like a memory. Like I want to have a product that I can put in people's homes, which is what I'm doing now with the launch of our frozen pizza brand. I think what I wanted to do with the brand more than anything else really was create something unique in a space that is very monotonous. Not in a bad way. Some of the best food. No, the Japanese food business. I love Japanese food. I've always loved Japanese food. And Japanese food for me is not sushi and sashimi. It's everything else that goes with it. And, you know, I, I'm a big sneakerhead. I grew up on video games. Like, I was a Nintendo fanboy. I still am. So, even Sony played. Like, for me, it's part of my, it's part of my personal culture. Japan is, at least. Um, and I wanted, and I've never been to Japan, which is the saddest thing ever. But whenever I have time, I'm in New York. Yeah, have good imagination. Yeah, and uh, a good unfortunately. Imagination. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> a double-edged sword, a good imagination. Um, with, with Akiba Dori, I wanted something that I call idiot-proof Japanese food. So I don't want this to be something complicated. I don't want you to come into my restaurant, look at the menu and say, I don't know what, I don't know what I'm ordering, well. so I'm not going to order it. I want it to be super democratic, super accessible. Everyone would know what it is. A very global palate. So because that really didn't exist outside the street food realm, I had to create it. Was there a need for it? Apparently so. You don't know if there's a need for what you're making. You have no idea. You think, oh, your friend says, you know what, bro? You should make a zatar uh, cheesecake. Because my mom makes it, it's great. Oh, you know what? Yeah, maybe some people want it. But then you make it, nobody wants that, that cheesecake. So why that did you terrible. come to D3? What was the impetus behind that? Is it to follow the lighthouse? I'm just joking. <laughs> just had to say that. Yes, of course. The <laughs> um, <laughs> lighthouse on Google Maps, actually. And he's like, can you change this somehow? I don't know who wrote it. It really says Akibadori opposite to the lighthouse. Does it really? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, some guy's like, hey, man, it's the lighthouse. <laughs> I don't know what happened there, but... No, so D3 for me was, I wanted to test the brand, really. I wasn't going to go into a mall with it. It didn't make sense because we're not a franchise. We're not an international brand. Going into a mall when you're local, it's very difficult, to be honest with you, because most of your customers are tourists. And tourists will be see Yosushi or Akibadori. Where are they going to go? Correct. They're going to go to Yosushi. With D3, it was more a, that was a lifestyle decision. Because the people that are in D3, I thought, are the people that could elevate my brand. They'd give us the right feedback. They push it on their socials if they liked it. Um, they they exercise a lot of social influence, if you will. And that was, for me, a much easier play and a much better play and a, a more risk-averse play than going into some like really high-profile location. And, and the funny thing is, um, when I go back and look at my concept... And that was I, my next question. ...what I projected... So wh- what it was then and what are we, what are we today... I'm 100% almost on my projections. I mean, talking financially. In terms of the, numbers. But the source of the projections, I'm Very way different. off. Okay. Walk um, us through that. So I expected I'd have more of a European expat crowd uh, that would want to drink after work. So that didn't happen because nobody in D3 drinks after work. People want to get out and go home. And you have more of an Emirati crowd. Yeah, well, most of my customers are Emirati. And 
which worked out great because they're the best spenders in the market. Absolutely. So um, I'm not saying I don't have expat clients. I do. Um, but what I'm saying is, you know, the Emirati crowd made Akibadori what it is, to be honest with you. What do you think resonated with them and why do you think some of the other groups that you had projected in your early projections didn't come through? And I'm not saying it's an Akibadori thing, could very well be a D3 thing. We're obviously here as well, so we have our own kind of trends, but I want to hear your perspective on that. It's actually a very simple explanation, and I hope I don't insult anybody when I say this, but it's an expat mentality versus a local mentality. I consider myself a local because I've been living here for 17 years. I grew up in the GCC. So when a new place opened in Dubai, I didn't care where it was. Marina, you know, you go. I'll go. You I'll go. go try it out. I'm like you. All my friends are like that. My friends that grew up here. My Emirati friends are like my Lebanese friends that grew up here are like that. My Omani friend, one Omani friend, Sammy, okay. is like that. It's always like, where's the new place? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, we're all like that. Yeah, so it's a different culture. I'm not like that now with a kid at home and two dogs, but it's before that, let's say. Um, so that culture for me is very unique and it's the majority among certain uh, groups here. But like my friends who live in the marina would never come to Republic. Right. Ever. It was the hottest club in Dubai that we had queues of 100 people outside. He was still not gone. And I own the place and I'm one of my, they're my close friends. They're like, man, we love you, but it's so far. It's 20 minutes away. I used to trek to Brooklyn for like my friend's birthday and some random speakeasy and take me 45 minutes in traffic. And I'd have to walk for half an hour and I'd go. If the mentality here of going the distance is not the same as it is anywhere Amongst else. Amongst expats, is that what you're saying? Amongst expats. Okay. They Why won't leave their area. Is? Why do you think that is? I don't know the reason. I, it's not laziness. That's not it. No. I just think you get used to your local, like your neighborhood yeah. watering hole. And that comes from the way you grew up. Because like in Beirut, I only lived in Lebanon for six years of my life, for seven years of my life. We went to the same place over and over again because it became our, our local. So that, but I didn't have that my whole life. I have friends who grew up in the UK who went to the same pub. For 20 years before they moved I here. I think different cities work differently. You're yeah. right. And I think it depends on the size of the city, traffic, the type of people in the city. Um, so would then the decision be for you to take Akibadori to where those people are? Is that what you're doing now with I expansion? I am doing that. I am okay. doing that. So, I am, so walk us a bit through your expansion plans. So um, obviously 2020 was for me the best year in the last 20 years, I think to potentially expand your business or look at expanding your business because it made you realize that strong brands can build market share, essentially. Actually, I was going to go something completely more philosophical. Okay. Like but nothing, mine is far smaller. Nothing is the end of the world. No, mine is so much better. Use, use my, I think my line is just, it just sounds better. Let, let's print both of them out <laughs> okay. and see which one people and, hang yeah, on there. Let's have on. listeners decide which ones. Exactly. So nothing is the end of the world. I, I say that a lot, but it's like my stupid cat, one of my stupid cat's phrases. Every, I had friends who were going through such a difficult time in 2020. I've been through some of the very difficult times. I've been through like really like difficult times, financially, career-wise, career in parentheses. Um, Why in parentheses? I don't really know if I know what I do is, can be classified as a career. It is a career. I mean, it's... it's career normally has a single... I don't know, no, I think it's in a very conventional sense. It's most definitely is a career. Yeah. yeah, I'm not saying this to make you feel better. I've been in both. Yeah. So I, I really have a sense. And I think what's interesting, you've touched on something completely different. What I think is very interesting is, and that's a challenge for entrepreneurs in general, is how do you benchmark yourself and your progression? Because unlike working for Pepsi, you know, where you get a promotion. Yeah. Uh, when you work for yourself, that doesn't really quite happen. The feedback is patchy. 
So yeah. you need to almost Patchy nut the chocolate, right? Because that would have been nice. Like you know, you bring me up here. God. But it's most definitely is a career. In fact, I think it's a very interesting part of your of of your career. But the the benchmarks are not as obvious for me personally. The benchmark is time. Okay. How much time do I have left? Interesting. You seem to. You, that seems to be a current theme. That's across, my. That's always. Yeah. That's always been my thing. The reason I couldn't stay employed is I don't want anyone else to own my time. I didn't care if I didn't make any money. I just wanted to own my time. But did you also not care to be building your own business and owning equity in your own business? No. No? No. For me, it was more, again, it's a time thing. So as long as my 24 hours a day are mine to choose, to spend them the way I want, be as productive as I want or as not productive as I want, I wanted that freedom. As long as I had that, I genuinely didn't care about anything else. But then you start realizing that... It's one or the same. So if you're going to own your time and survive, you need your business to be successful. Your business has to be successful because you put in the time. But at okay. least I'm putting in the time towards my So you sort of, 2020 was an opportunity for you it's to It's a huge opportunity for me and other people. And I, one, and I said this uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was, I was chatting with someone from Arabian Business with Gavin, and I said that all the vanity projects have... Yeah, yeah, I read that. Uh, and by the way, this is something I said back in... In 2019, I saw it happening, and I, 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 was in an, I was in an interview in 2019 where I said, vanity projects, are, their days are numbered because the market was spiraling. Um, but 2020 was the polite excuse to close the restaurant your wife convinced you would be a good idea to open. That one night you were cycling through, I don't know where. No, because a lot of these things happen, by the way. I'm not, I'm not knocking it, but like, there are a lot better things to do with your time and money than to do something because your neighbor did it and is doing it well. So there's a lot of this thing in the, in the Arab also, world. I, I'm not dis dissuading anyone from my own personal experience, an incredibly difficult business to make work. Any business is difficult if yeah, you don't know what the hell you're doing. This is especially challenging in my view because I think yeah. it has processes. It's typically on relatively uh, tight margins. Correct. There's a huge emotional and human element to people, both as customers and staff. It's ever-evolving. It's very competitive. Barriers to entries are not very high. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, it really... And that's perception, right? Because I remember when I opened my nightclubs, people would assume I was, like, just printing cash. 100%. Okay. Which was not the case at all, by the way. Maybe Republic, I was printing cash because it was, like, the cheapest rent in, in history. Amar never did that again. But... Um, yeah, typically it's hard. Hard to make very, it work financially. It's very difficult. Even. And they don't get it. And they think, oh, uh, you know, it's great here. I'm sure it'll, everyone will like it. And... I'm not, again, I'm, I'm the first person to push somebody to get started and figure something out as they go along. But I knew this industry from the other side incredibly well before I got into it. Incredibly, incredibly well. I had a lot of friends in the business. I never asked anybody for advice because I didn't want to be that guy. I had to kind of figure things out on my own. But now I give advice if somebody asks me. Um, so what's your I, advice? Because I wish somebody did actually give me advice earlier on. There's a lot. I don't even know where but to start. But would you not go into this business, let's just talk specifically about F&B, mm -hmm. today with what you've learned over the last couple of years? Without the knowledge that I have, if I'm just figuring something out, I want to get into a new business right now, I probably would. You would? Yes. Why would you? Um, again, my objectives are very different to most people's. Sure. Uh, because I want to build something I can sell. Yeah, so it is what we I said earlier. I mean, building something for yourself does mean something to you. I mean, because you've said you said, well, no, that wasn't really the, that. That is obviously part the of the money. Motivation. Seems something to me because that buys me my time, right? And 
So okay. that's ultimately it. Whether it's this or whether it's me messing around with with cryptocurrencies or me messing around with uh, Pokemon cards makes no difference. That, that's why I'm saying I'm maybe I'm a bit extreme when it comes to this stuff. I'm not a passionate person. I'm just very curious about things. So, so anything that you think you can sell, you would do. Yes. Regardless of doesn't matter what it is. Okay. That's why I don't like the word entrepreneur. I think it's a horrible word for me personally. I prefer opportunist because that's what I do. <laughs> no, really, I, I, I find opportunities. Sure. I look for. I'm actively looking for opportunities. Yeah. I don't sit there and a bird flies by and drops thing on my my lap. I'm like. What is this? It looks like some kind of a coin with a B on it. So you are building this business solely for the purpose of eventually selling it. Yes. That's, that's kind of the trajectory we're on already. I mean, with, with everything that's coming up and now we've started franchising. Um, and this is not like something I want to do for 20 years. I've got other things I'm doing as well that I don't even talk about yet. But it gives me the chance to do those other things. And I'm really lucky that you know I'm at a stage where the group of partners that I have around me are like totally along for the ride they know exactly where it's headed we're all kind of aligned on expectations no one's asking for like dividends every three months because they want to put the money back into the business so i'm really happy where i am from that perspective people struggle like you said before to raise and it's not easy and i was speaking to somebody a couple of days ago on clubhouse who for all he just had to purposes, drop clubhouse i felt I don't know why I did that. Yeah, I'm, launching that totally a show. I'm launching a show on there. Totally uh, unnecessary. Because especially that I know Hany, you just got an invite. Are, you got an invite like two days ago. So, I mean, really, that was... Actually... Uh, a week ago? Two weeks ago, max. 19 days ago. Yeah, it's not bad. 19 I'm a, days ago. I'm a mover and a shaker, man. Yeah, that's... Yeah, it's mean, been around since 2018. It must 2018. be Mark Andreessen's buddy, but yeah. So, me and Hani are launching a show. Oh, gosh. Where, uh, it's called Hisham or Hashim. <laughs> and basically, it's just us talking about which one is cooler and talking about historical fa historical figures with those I names. I take that back. And then after six, months, Clubhouse. <laughs> after six months, we get we see if it's Hashim or Hisham, and then that'll be it. So, oh, boy. Um, um, okay, so, so just to go back to what we were saying, so... If that's the, your, your idea, which is essentially build a business, doesn't matter. You scale which, it, build it, scale it, prove that it can 100%, thrive. Proof of concept and sell Correct. it. So how, as you move from one business to the next, what are the common points? What are the touch points that pervade those businesses? Because, I mean, going back to the learning concept, right? So you've had a nightlife business. You're now in the F&B business. Okay, those are somewhat common, but still... Are you going from business to business and saying, you know what, now I know how to do this and I'm going to take it to my next business? Or is it from scratch all over again? To some extent, it's from scratch. The only thing that I think follows through is that if you're going to mess something up, do it really, 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 really fast. Like figure out in the first three months that this business is not for you and get out. There's not, nothing, nothing worse than like spending a year of your time and your life on something that you could have just pulled the plug on three months into it. It's very noble that people try, but it's not, there's nothing bad about failing in something there's really nothing what's worse than failing is thinking you're going to succeed and then wasting your time when you could have tried four different things you strike me as not afraid of failing which is very unusual why it's not lots of, lots of people no i mean that i mean fear of failure i mean i can tell you very openly i mean i definitely grew up uh grew up i mean you know like and amongst me peers where fear of failure was something we all thought about i mean i wouldn't have so why did you fear failure because you thought it would be the end of the world. That's why I'm saying 2020 proved that it was not, nothing is the end of the world. My final question to you is, so as you look into 2021 and beyond, and you look at what you've done with Akibadori, are there processes you're trying to put in place to move from one to, let's call it three, four, five? Because that's a, a big, and I, I'm, I'm asking this question also selfishly because we're going through this now. 
So I, I just started on my franchise manual. Okay. Okay. So, and it's going to take a couple of months and I already have franchises lined up um, in a couple of cities uh, around the world, not just here. But the new ones that are coming that you've said already in the media, like Jeddah and Abu Dhabi. Jeddah and Abu Dhabi are uh, JV. You, they're, they're operated by me. Operated by you. So and how? And there's a third one I'm launching in Dubai as well. So operationally, what do you do differently to get those Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Jeddah up and running successfully? Successfully, anything operations related for me, because I'm not an ops guy, is my team. So how do you take the culture of Akibadori that you see when you walk in today? So I literally bring the people who will end up managing those okay. outlets to D3, to Dubai. Okay. And they become part of the part of the team here for months and months before we open. So, so you when kind of Jeddah, them with that culture yeah, and then send them out. When Jeddah opens, uh, the guys that are running it there have been with us for almost two years. Okay. So we take we spend more money now to be able to do that. Because what I don't want to happen is an opportunity comes along for me to open a restaurant in three or six months. And I need to go find someone and train them. I need to believe that we are going to do these things. So this is the gamble I took last year, in the middle of a pandemic. I was going to say, but some of the people so interrupted that you hired, you hired because you were supposed to open Jeddah before. Obviously, pandemic happened. So I'm saying in a typical scenario, so this was unusual, yeah. would you have kept them for two years? Or would you have kept them for three months? Or what, what makes sense? No, so Jeddah is a, is a unique case, obviously. Correct. But even before that, there were people on board that were there because they were going to be part of the expansion plan from the beginning. So my payroll was higher than it would have been for a startup uh, because I wanted to make sure like my core team, like I could, they can go run the whole outlet, which is exactly where I am now. So we can open these next three with a team that we have now running each one of those outlets. And I would feel like it's Billy, my ops director, running each one, So which, which is amazing. So that was a gamble. And um, I had to justify it to myself to do it because most people don't do that. They just take it as it comes along. It's like car manufacturers. They don't keep parts in their storage. They, because it takes up storage space and it costs money, they buy the parts as they come along, which is why now a lot of cars are delayed because of semiconductor shortage and they didn't, you know. So there's pros and cons to these different, um, to the different formats. But for me, it was a gamble I wanted to take because I felt like this brand could go places. And by the end of this year, if things go according to plan, we might have eight of these open. By the, the end world. of this year, by the end 2021. Of 2021. Wow. Between franchises and ones that we're going to operate. Which is crazy. So after three years, to, and it jumped really fast. Again, 2020 was the, was the catalyst. Because 2020 pushed us, like pushed us a lot. People were rediscovering, people were discovering new brands. Uh, delivery helps a little bit, obviously. Um, but uh, it, was, it was the year that I think people started to realize like nothing is the end of the world. And there's, it's always going to be bad and it's going to get better. What do I do when it gets better? So people that just gave up last year, they're in a very difficult position today. People that saw 2020 as a year to potentially grow personally, business, whatever, are hopefully going to reap the benefits of that by next year. This year is the aftershock a little bit, I still think. So it's still going, still going to be difficult for a lot of people. But if you take those chances, it's like Bitcoin. Everyone's like, oh man, if you had bought one Bitcoin. Yeah, but nobody works like that. That's a ridiculous concept. So if you're going to wait, again, I go back to the point of if you're going to wait until you're ready, you're never going to start. So start before you're even ready and then you're going to figure it out anyway. And now is the perfect time for that. Thank you for listening to the Lighthouse Conversations with me, Hesham Montasir. We're produced by Chirag Desai and our content director is Farah Sharif. Make sure you don't miss any future episodes by visiting thelighthouse.ae slash podcast and click on that subscribe button. We'll see you in two weeks.